I'm going to read to you two short bits of scripture. I would love to read to you the whole um, section, but it takes a while. And I want to try and touch on something this morning. So I'm going to read to you from Romans 9, 1 to 5, and then I'm going to turn and read to you from chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. I'm reading from the ESV. So in my work Bible, it's entitled God's Sovereign Choice. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You might remember that the last time I spoke, I told you about a a day that I went up Helvellyn with a friend of mine from a a church that I pastored some years ago, and how I huffed and puffed and everything on the way up. Well, when you get to the top of any climb um, in the Lake District, you know, you might huff and puff, and providing it is a glorious day, you get a fantastic view from the top. But they will tell you constantly that you need to go prepared. Prepared in case the weather takes a turn for the worst. Because all of a sudden, clouds can engulf the top of a, 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 a whether it's a mountain, I suppose it is, I don't know what, what feet you've got to be at to be on a mountain, we'll call it a mountain, it sounds better. So... But the the clouds can engulf the top, the weather can make a slight turn, and all of a sudden you get engulfed in mist. And all of a sudden, something that would have been so easy to do, and you would be able to navigate your way back down from the top of the mountain, becomes a lot more difficult, and you have to take your time. And last week, when I started speaking, I said we had reached a place where it was like we had topped out on the top of a mountain and there was this wonderful view. But I, this morning, as we go into chapter 9 in Romans, it's like the clouds have taken a slight turn. It's glorious, the content, but it's misty and it takes some time to navigate. And so I'm not sure where I'm going to cut this because I'm going to have to cut it this morning. But I pray and hope that you will just stick with me. 
I want to set the scene for this morning. The scene is this. We are going to start looking at one of the great themes of Scripture, God's sovereignty. God's sovereignty. His right to do what he pleases. And this is a theme that will do one of two things for you. You will either rejoice or you might even get mad. There's two ends of the spectrum with this theme. I pray that none of us will get mad and that we will all rejoice because I don't believe that any of Scripture is written in order to frustrate us, to make us angry. I believe it is there for our encouragement and comfort. It is there in order that we get to know the God who created the universe and threw the stars in space and holds the whole shooting match in place this morning. He is the Almighty. Let's not reduce God to a mate. I knew a guy once who thought it was great. He was a youth worker. Could have been because he was a youth worker. I'll forgive him though. Um, but he was, his favorite phrase was soz God. Soz God. And he treated God like a mate. And whilst I understand what he was trying to communicate to people, to reduce God to just a mate just doesn't cut it. I don't care what we do, it just doesn't cut it. God loves us passionately. God gave, the Father gave Jesus to die on our behalf. But just to reduce him to a mate seems to reduce him to a place of insignificance. And God can never be called insignificant. Nobody can ever call God insignificant. And so we're going to be trying to make our way through over several weeks. Won't be next week, but I'll start it today. Over the next several weeks, we're going to deal with three chapters of Scripture which have divided people, have caused arguments, have not just caused arguments, but actually pushed people, poles apart, depending on which end of the spectrum you want to sit. And that is not what God intends. But God does, through the inspiration of Scripture, because we believe that the Bible is the inspired, infallible Word of God, it is there, it teaches us everything we need to know about God and His dealings with humanity, and what is required of us, at least to attempt to live, without trying to make ourselves righteous. Because at the end of that little passage that I read at 10, it says, the law no longer counts for righteousness. Because our righteousness is not based on our own effort. It is based entirely on the gift of God in Jesus and the shed blood that he shed on Calvary and when we put our faith and trust in him for our righteousness we need not fear I think it's fair to say 
We have no problem with the idea of the sovereignty of God when it's all about blessings and us getting his promises. So we have no problem when people quote to us from the Old Testament, you know, for I have plans for you, plans to prosper you, all the rest of it. We have no problem with God being sovereign at that point in our life when we get a word like that, do we? It's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. But you might be like me. I love the traditional Christmas meal. You can tell I like food just by looking at me. And you can tell I like food because everything we do outside of this main meeting is around food. All right? The small group I attend is around food. I'll eat anytime with anybody, anywhere. All right? So I love the traditional Christmas meal. But there's one thing in the Christmas meal I really dislike. Brussels sprouts. <laughs> I hate them with a passion. I've been told by different people at different times that I will love the way in which they produce Brussels sprouts. But I've got to tell you, it doesn't matter how they're tried to be doctored, I ate them. I really do. I put them in my mouth and the taste of them, whether they're covered in honey, whether they've got bacon bits with them, whether they're fried or whatever, it just tastes foul. And so I will make a choice at that point to either not have the Brussels sprouts on my plate from the start off, or if they do get put on my plate, I push them to the edge of the plate and I never eat them. Does that mean Brussels sprouts aren't good for me? I would hazard a guess that no, it doesn't. Brussels sprouts will have some think that I, my physical body would benefit from if I wasn't so against them. I want to start a, a, a thing about against Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts out, you know. So they're good for you. They are good for you. But because I find them unpalatable, I don't want to pick them up. The Bible is like that. There are parts of the Bible that we struggle with and we find unpalatable. And because we find them unpalatable, we push them to our side plate and ignore them. We know that they're there, but we ignore them. Or we cut them off entirely and we, have, we don't just ignore them when they're brought up. We actually never bother looking at them because we don't like what's coming next. And so this morning, we're looking at the sovereignty of God. And the sovereignty of God is a, a fantastic thing. Because it should give us a sense of security. A sense of well-being that God is in control. No matter what is happening around us, God is in control. It should make us burst forth with praise. And yet at certain points... We struggle as we seek to apply it. So here we go. A simple definition of sovereignty of God. This is not mine. I make no apologies for that. This belongs to John Piper. John Piper was asked to give a simple definition of the sovereignty of God. So here is an extract of his reply. 
Well, I like to make every effort to keep things clear and simple. And I think one of the reasons we don't speak with much clarity sometimes is that we don't start with definitions. That's where I like to start on almost every conversation I have. When we say God is sovereign, we mean he is powerful and authoritative to the extent of being able to override all other powers and authorities. That is my effort at a definition. Nothing can successfully stop any act or any event or design or purpose that God intends to certainly bring about. That's my definition. Nothing can stop God. I'm arguing that nothing can thwart or stop God's purposes. When all is said and done, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And I think that's just about the best definition of sovereignty in the Bible. He is the positive way of saying that he will accomplish all his will. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. And then he says in the next verse, it is God talking about his goodness. My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. There's nothing that he purposes that, does not that he does not accomplish. Nothing can stop him. He does it all. And then you have Ephesians 1.11, one of the most sweeping statements of sovereignty in the Bible according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. Whatever happens, it accords with the counsel of his will. God is sovereign. He is in control. A bit later in Romans, when we get to chapter 13, we're going to have a difficult, another difficult moment because it talks about authorities in the world and the reason and the fact that we should submit to the authorities that are there. And a lot of us think and look at our authorities who are ruling our world and say to ourselves, well, why should I be obedient to them? Why should I take that line? It's because every power... Every authority that is in place, whether you consider it good or bad, is only there because God allows it to be where it is. And that is difficult for us to take because we know there's lots of stuff that goes on in this world that we know that God, in the overall um, the overall character of who he is, he cannot condone. But you see, God's purposes are far higher than ours. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than your ways. And so God knows the end from the beginning. He is the first and he is the last. I, used to, I watched a film. I can't remember what it was called now, but it was a war film because I like those films. Vietnam, I think it was. And it was about Mel Gibson, I think it was, played the uh, colonel. And the whole tenor of the film was the colonel was the first one to put his foot on the ground and the last one to take his foot off. And that's how I view God. He is the first to put his foot, his power, his authority in the creation of the world 
And he will be the last who removes his foot from the battlefield when he recreates the whole of the universe and we dwell with him forever. Sovereignty is a beautiful scriptural theme that we have to grapple with and wrestle with because we end up asking ourselves the question which everybody hates. We loved it when I was at Bible College, predestination, I'll throw the word out there. We loved it at college. We argued for hours, you know, about it, you know. We argued about a lot of things at Bible College, in fairness, but that was one of our favorites. And you had the two camps, the Arminians versus the Calvinists, and everybody by the end of year one was firmly rooted in one camp or the other and you would just stand throwing stones at each other you know shouting the other person down they had their proof texts and you had your proof texts and you would every time they put up their proof text you would counter it with your proof text and it just wasted time to be perfectly frank we should have discussed the sovereignty of God not whether someone is a predetermined to hell or predetermined to go to heaven the sovereignty of God. So, human decisions. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord, Proverbs 16. The heart of a man plans his way. Who establishes his steps? The Lord, Proverbs 19:21. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. That's Proverbs 21. And here's a scripture that I love. Now, you know the story of Joseph, don't you? How his brothers took against him. They sold him into slavery in Egypt. He was, Potiph- he was at Potiphar's house and he ended up in prison and all sorts. And he rose to a place of authority within Egypt. And at the end of Genesis in chapter 50, verse 20, it says, As for you... Joseph says to his brothers who sold him into slavery, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So the very same thing that is evil in someone's intention, the same event God can intend for good. So just very quickly, I'm going to open this passage just at the start. We won't get to the rest until a fortnight's time. The one thing that really struck me when I started reading Romans 9 is this. Paul's desire and passion for the people who he identified himself with. Paul was passionate. And it's something, a learning point for us, I think, that we should pick up. Because I wonder how many of us, like Paul, would even express things like Paul did, right? About folk in our families, our personal families, our friends, our neighbours, the people we work with, the people we know. Where we would say, like Paul did, he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. 
That is an unbelievable statement to start with. Totally an unbelievable statement. That here is a man who is so passionate about seeing people one for Jesus that he is willing to make the statement, if it were possible, I would give it up that my brethren, my friends, my kinsmen could come and know Christ. And in chapter 10, verse 1, he says again, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he is referring to Jews at this point, is that they might be saved. He is a man who is driven with a passion to see people come to and know Jesus. And I want to challenge us right at the outset this morning. Because I'm telling you, when I started preparing for this, I suddenly realized how much my passion falls short in this arena. And I'm ashamed to admit it. How much time do we put into praying for those who are lost that we actually know? Could be our children, could be other family members, the wider family, uncles, aunts, whatever. How much time do we put in to praying and calling on the name of the Lord for their salvation? You see, we're quite lazy very often. We hide behind the fact, well, God knows once I've asked once, it's a lack of faith if I ask a second time. But I want to tell you this morning, if you were part of my family and I saw you hurtling towards a precipice, guess what? I am going to do my darndest. I don't care what the cost is. I'm going to do everything within my power to stop you careering off the edge of a cliff and dropping to your death. I'm not going to say, well, I've shouted and he's ignored me or she's ignored me and let them get on with it. It's their fault. As a father, there's no way I will do that with my children. No way whatsoever. And yet sometimes spiritually, we take that position where we just allow neighbors, friends, family to career towards a precipice that one day they will face and I've got to tell you we only have one life on this earth we only have one opportunity to tell people really this opportunity now is the day of salvation not tomorrow not next year now is today the day of salvation and I want to pray, you know, we pray prayers sometimes and we, make, we wax eloquent with things like, Lord, break my heart with what breaks yours. We don't really mean it. That's the trouble. We pray it. It sounds nice when we pray it in front of our friends in the prayer meeting, but do we really mean it? Because if we did, I want to tell you, God's heart breaks for the lost. Every person that doesn't know him, that is in rebellion to him, I believe God's heart is breaking for. He wants all men, all people, everywhere to be saved. Now we know that some will not turn. We already know that from Romans 1. Because he says there are people who did not consider the knowledge of God something worth a jot. And so 
They ignored him. They put him out. They decided he was rubbish. This is a load of rubbish. This is just a story. It's not even worth a myth. So we already know that God then gives over those people over to their own desire to go to the end of where they're going to go because not because particularly he's saying you can go all the way but he already knows the end from the beginning. He knows where you're going. You see, he's eternal. He sees Everything, the beginning from the end. He sees it all. It's not like us. We see partly, don't we? We only can tell what's happening in our life in the rear view mirror. But God sees it all. The thing that struck me and challenged me right at the outset of this passage was Paul's amazing heart for those who did not know Jesus or because they are in this place where they believe because they were the children of God somehow they believed they were already in and they couldn't understand why Paul seemed to be saying something different and we will unpack that next time I speak alright I do want you to get it I did have a quote here I just want to read it to you if I can find it I probably won't be able to find it I never can when I'm looking for what I want there was somebody quoted from Martin Luther um, and Martin Luther basically was saying um, how he, you know, it was incredible. Oh, here it is, I think. Yeah, it seems incredible that a man would desire to be damned in order that the damned might be saved. Martin Luther, whenever he was alive, a long time ago. But it's so true. There is passion here for the lost. He is in sorrow and he is in anguish, you know. And sorrow and anguish is there because he sees what glorious stuff they already have. The adoption as sons and daughters, the glory of God on them, the covenants that they were given, the giving of the law, the worship in the temple the promises, the patriarchs, and the fact that Christ himself came for them. Paul is in anguish because, because they have so much and yet so little. And as I say, next week we will get on to the argument. The only one thing I want to say to you so you don't, you don't next time we meet... In the first eight chapters, Paul is dealing with individuals. In these next three chapters, Paul is not dealing with individuals. He's dealing with Israel. And he's dealing with Gentiles. And that is important when we come to the issue of predestination. All right? It is really important. Okay? 
So, um, whereas he's dealt with individuals up until the end of chapter 8, he then moves into this place where he starts to talk about the Jews and where, you know, who is a Jew, really? Who is part of Israel, really? Is it all of Israel or is it people of the promise? And we will, as I say, unpack that next time. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you that, Lord, when you inspired these words that were penned by these writers, Lord, you wanted to give us a picture, a glorious picture of who you were. We heard Dave read this morning, you are the supreme one. You have supremacy. You have preeminence. And Father God, we want to know the God who is over all and has all things within his orbit and control. Not the small God that we sometimes have who's not big enough to meet our needs. And so, Lord, I just pray that through this week, Lord, that we don't go away condemned this morning because, Lord, we don't pray enough for the lost. But, Father, just bring some folk to mind this week. And as you do, Lord, remind us to pray for them if they're lost, Lord. Well, remind us to pray for them regardless. But, Lord, especially if they're lost, Father, let us just spend a moment or two just coming to you and praying and asking you to work in their lives. Lord, I want to thank you for the glorious themes of Scripture. And Father, I pray that we will just really wrestle with our own little demons, Father, about things and we will come to a place where we grasp the vastness of who you are. Amen. Amen.